Our gospel reading for today is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Hear God's holy word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we give you thanks for your holy inspired inerrant word. Every word of it is life and health to us. Uh, it is it is water for thirsty throats. It is food for hungry souls. We ask you now to fill us with it, to help us to hear it and receive it, and to truly rejoice in what you have done in Jesus and through Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would guide us in our thoughts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. People of God, it seems every year about this time we hear the same guilt-laden comments coming from the same tired voices about the over-commercialization and the wastefulness and the materialism of Christmas. Ever since Charlie Brown made do with that little twig and that one little ornament, which somehow represented the real pristine meaning of Christmas in some way, I guess. Um, ever since then, at least since then, we've been told how, how guilty we should feel, that we buy food and presents and treats and we go overboard with decorations and, and parties. You, you hear this all the time. Everybody's running around making themselves so crazy. It, are we really, are you crazy? Are, are you frazzled? Are you, are you anxious? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see everybody getting crazy or stressed out. But that's, that's kind of the trope, right? That's, that's kind of what's repeated. Yeah, everybody's so crazy. Everybody's just running around and, uh, and, and not focusing on the real meaning of Christmas. Uh, we're spending too much money on gifts, right? We're, 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 if we were really genuine and we were really sincere, then we would just make do by you know, just giving each other paper dolls and, and, and little crafts made out of popsicle sticks and glue. You know, It's like, I made you something. Oh, that's precious. And we'd sit by the fire with watered-down, sugar-free hot cocoa, and we just enjoy uh, Christmas, and that's the real meaning of Christmas. Because, you know, all those decorations and all those gifts, all this distracts us from the true meaning of Christmas, right? You, you'll even hear some tight-shoed fundamentalists say that what we're doing is we're co-opting pagan rituals. We're actually making God angry, and we're calling down his judgment on our head with all of our trees and lights and Christmas carols. You hear this stuff so often, and you hear it year after year to the point that, that it may start to get in your head and make you think maybe, maybe they're onto something. Maybe they do have a point. And by the way, I really don't feel like spending any money. So maybe I should adopt that as, a, as my theology. As if, as if we really don't have a cause for making a really big deal over what we're celebrating. As if we are flagrantly wasting 
our, our, our resources and exchanging gifts and throwing big feasts and big parties. And, and, and as if we're actually sinning by getting our family and friends together to rejoice with each other. As if there's no biblical precedent for doing anything that we're doing. The truth of the matter is, this what we do, this is how you celebrate a great deliverance. This is how you celebrate being rescued from darkness and death and ignorance. This is how you celebrate being delivered into a kingdom of light and life and understanding. This is how God's people have always acknowledged and given thanks for his mighty acts on their behalf. How do they do it? They do it with singing and dancing and giving gifts and feasting and drinking. And they do it with special traditions. God's people celebrate their salvation, not by withdrawing from each other, not by solitude and misery and, and sugar-free hot cocoa watered down, not by piously rejecting God's good gifts, but by enjoying the people and the things that he has given them. And by doing this, we lead the world in the right and thankful enjoyment of all of God's good gifts. We show the world, no, this is how you're supposed to act. This is how you behave when God has done something really incredible and amazing for you. You're supposed to be really thankful for the, what the Lord Jesus has done. And here's how you do it. Here's, here's what that looks like. Now, let's take a step back for just a minute. Are there people in the world who are throwing secular generic holiday parties with holiday trees and it's all about Santa Claus and they, they give gifts without ever acknowledging the birth of Jesus. Are there people who do that? Yes, there are, absolutely. Should their abuse of good things in any way change what we do? Should, should that tarnish our spirit? No, we don't change our enjoyment of a good thing God has given us because somebody else has abused it, right? I mean, where do, where do we get that thinking? I, I forget who, who, I couldn't find this quote this week. It's either Lewis or Chesterton. And if they didn't say it, they should have. It's one of those two guys, is it Lewis or Chesterton, who says, you know, there are heathens that worship the sun. Should we pluck it out of the sky? Should we not give thanks for the sun's warmth and light? There are pagans who worship the sun. Our enjoyment and thanksgiving for the sun uh, in no way is colored by or reflects their worship of the sun. You see, just because someone abuses something good doesn't mean we must necessarily reject it. You, you hear this kind of thing all the time, that, that because some branch of the church abuses a good thing, therefore it's off limits. We can't do that because some branch of the church has abused it and gone to excess on it, and therefore we can't do it. Well, where, where does this coming from. Yes, there are people who ignore Jesus and still borrow from our traditions and still borrow from our songs and they still borrow from our culture. I'm not advocating that we join them in their secularization of Christmas, but that we reject it and we reject it by doing it the right way, right? Now, are there people who go into debt this time of year? Are there people who buy things they honestly can't afford? Well, sure. Are, are there people who waste money on frivolous things and get carried away spending money? Yes, there are. So don't be bad stewards of God's gifts to you. Don't waste money. That's a sin uh, itself. Don't, don't be wasteful. There have been many, many years in, in our marriage, in our lives, where we may not have had Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, but it was maybe one step up from Charlie Brown's Christmas tree and Charlie Brown's Christmas. We just didn't have a lot of extra money to spend. We had to be really careful and we had to stretch every dollar and pinch every penny 
So our, our celebrations weren't extravagant by any measure. So whatever you say, whatever you hear me say today, don't, don't hear me saying you have to spend a lot of money you don't have, or you have to be bad stewards of what you do have. Um, but, but are there people who believe that money and things are what make us happy? That money and things are what make us content? Well, yes, of course there are people who believe that, and that too is a lie. Materialism rejects the creator. Materialism places gratitude upon the creation rather than the creator. Materialism is idolatry, and we reject that. Other folks who make giving all about them, who selfishly pride themselves on giving embarrassingly extravagant gifts. And as they give, it really has nothing to do with blessing you. It has to do with you seeing how magnanimous I am, how incredible, how wealthy I am. Do people do that? Well, yes. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Gift giving is not an opportunity to be self-promoting. Are there people who really don't spend enough time with their family or their children and allow themselves to be overcommitted? And they really do bring a lot of unnecessary stress. Well, yes, again, that's just more selfishness. Do people forget that there are others in need, not only here locally, but around the world? And do they intentionally ignore those who are in need and pass over opportunities to be generous to them who are the poorest? Yes, there are people who ignore those who are in need, and they must repent, and we must all not forget the poor and the stranger and the widow and the orphan. There are many, many opportunities to sin here, but the fact that there are abuses is not an argument against us worshiping our king and rejoicing in a happy, holy way with a clear conscience. Not a single abuse is an argument against our rejoicing in Jesus at Christmas the way we do. And if you're not worshiping created things, if, if you give to the church, if you give to those who are in need, if you reject materialism, if you're living within your means, if you're not promoting greed or selfishness or covetousness, if, if you are not, if, if you are not uh, secularizing your Christmas, then, then rejoice with rejoice with a clear conscience. You are not disobeying God. You're not sinning against him, as some would have you believe. If you spend the season giving and finding creative and loving ways to give, don't let anyone heap guilt on you or pour cold water on your celebration or make you feel like I'm ignoring the real meaning of Christmas. It's, it's funny, and I, I, I know I've said this before, but the people at the stores, they're all lined up buying things, right? They're buying things for themselves, right? You know, they see the lines of the stores, all oh, the materialism, all oh, the commercialism. Oh, I can't believe it. All this money being spent on what? Things to give, right? Things to give away. Are they, are they buying things to keep for themselves or buying things to give away? How is that materialism? To have things and buy things so that you can give them away. Who wants you to be self-conscious and guilty about giving things away? Does Jesus want you to feel guilty about giving things away? Does he? Or does the accuser want you to feel guilty and awkward over giving things away? I have a sense that we get trapped by this guilt mongering and the guilt mongers themselves get trapped in their own thinking because we really have forgotten what we're making such a fuss about, what we are making such a big deal over. And we need to be reminded. That's why we celebrate every year. It's because we need to be reminded every year of what we have been delivered from and how we have been delivered. And we read about this in our gospel reading this morning. We read that the Holy Spirit created a child in the womb 
of a young virgin named Mary. Her betrothed husband wanted uh, to, uh, to, to not cover things up, but be discreet. He was a just man. He was a good man. He just doesn't know what to do with this information that she's with child, and he knows he's not the father. So he wants to send her off. He wants to be discreet. And as he's trying to come up with a solution, an angel visits him in a dream, and an angel gives him a responsibility, a very important responsibility. He says, this child, the angel says, this child is the gift of God's Holy Spirit. And you, Joseph, have a job. You must name him. And you're not going to name him after yourself. He's not going to be Joseph Jr. You're not going to name him after your father or some other family name. You're going to name him Yeshua. You're going to name him Joshua. You're going to name him Jesus, which means... Yahweh saves. Yah, Yahweh, Shua sa saves or delivers or has the victory. Yahweh delivers. You will call his name Yahweh delivers. Why? For he will deliver his people from their sins. Now, Matthew tells us that this was done so that the word of God spoken to the prophets would be fulfilled. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah. He says, as Isaiah foretold it, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So now we see the unfolding of the promise that we've been reading about in the prophets these past several weeks, this coming of Yahweh, this drawing near in the flesh. He's coming to his people just as he promised to save them, to deliver them, to give them life, to reorganize them, to renew covenant with them, to cut down the unfruitful trees, to graft in fruitful branches, to turn the deserts in the gardens. All of this is coming to bear. So Joseph hears the voice of the angel and he obeys him. And when the boy is born, Joseph gives him that name. He calls him God delivers, Yahweh delivers, Yahshua. That's, that's his name. The birth of Jesus and the naming of Jesus is the announcement to the world that God is accomplishing a great and mighty deliverance. The good news of the gospel is not that we now have some good tips for moral living that we didn't have before. We have some, some, some advice for how to be successful in life or in business or how to, how to possess some respectable social manners. The good news is not simply an invitation for you to carry out a private one-on-one -on -one transaction between your soul and God's heavenly presence. That's, that's, not, that's not the declaration that the angel gives to Joseph. The declaration of the angel, he will save his people from their sins, tells us that what God is working out is a deliverance on a scale bigger than anything the world has ever seen. Now, I've used this word, this Hebrew word shua, that word shua in Yahshua, Joshua, Jesus, that word shua means save or deliver, but throughout the Old Testament, it's also often used to mean victory. In 2 Samuel 23, God gave David and his mighty men a great shua, a great victory, a great salvation over the Philistines. The word salvation and deliverance and victory all have these same colors and all these same connotations where they're almost interchangeable, victory and salvation. And God gave David and his mighty men a shua, a victory, a great salvation over the Philistines. In 2 Kings 5, we get a description of Naaman. Remember Naaman, the Syrian leper, where we read, by him, by Naaman, Yahweh gave Shua to Syria. God gave a victory, salvation to Syria. 
In Exodus 14, this word is used repeatedly. In Exodus 14, Israel is about to cross the Red Sea. And Moses says in verse 13, he says, don't be afraid, stand still and see the Shua, see the salvation, see the victory of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. And then after the Egyptian army is drowned in the Red Sea, we read, so Yahweh saved Israel, Yahweh shuad Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then we have a song, Moses and the Israelites sing. I will sing to Yahweh for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he is thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my Shua. He has become my salvation. He has become my victory. He has become my deliverance. This word that comes up over and over and over. Every time there's a great deliverance, every time there's a great victory, this word is in Jesus's name. This word salvation or victory throughout the Old Testament, it doesn't really then refer to a quiet personal transaction between your heart and God's Holy Spirit. It refers to this victory, this deliverance, this salvation, an open, public, external victory of God over his enemies and our enemies. And because in the Bible, salvation is this very loud, it's this very communal, it's this very open, public, high profile kind of event. It deserves to be broadcast and shared and placarded. The Shua of God is not a private matter. The Shua of God is a public event to be seen by everybody and is to be celebrated and is to be pronounced and it's to be rejoiced in publicly, externally, openly with lots of lights and lots of gifts and trees and whatever else you can think of to say, you know what? This isn't a private event. This isn't a private transaction. See, this is the first reason we celebrate the way that we do and why you don't need to let anybody make you feel ashamed of it or let anybody cause you to shrink back from being open and flagrant about your rejoicing in this King and this savior. Jesus has saved his people. Jesus has delivered his people. Jesus has rescued his people. Jesus has had an open, public, definitive victory over the sins of his people. The sins of his people, not just the aggravations of his people, not just the uh, pet peeves of his people, not just the, the petty problems of his people, but he has had victory over all of the curses of all the broken covenants. And he has swallowed up the curse and he has forgiven and he has repealed the curse of the covenant. He has conquered death and he leads us out of that dead end world of death and into the light and the realm of eternal life. So all of us who who put our trust in the Lord Jesus, all of us who have been united to him in baptism, all of us have been delivered from the terror of hell and judgment. All of us, from the smallest to the biggest of us, from the youngest to the oldest of us, all of us have been carried over into his eternal life. Now, if, if you have a personal story of how the Lord has worked incredibly miraculously in your life to bring you from a real place of darkness and dead end judgment. And, and you've seen how he's carried you over into health and light and life and salvation. Boy, it, nobody's going to tell you not to rejoice over that deliverance, right? Nobody's going to stop you 
from rejoicing over that, right? But, but, but there are many of us who have never known a day where we didn't know the Lord Jesus, where we've grown up in Christian homes and we've known the Lord Jesus all of our lives. We've, we've never known a day where, where we didn't hear God's words read and sung and preached. But even for you, children, even for you, young men and women who can't remember a day when you didn't know the Lord Jesus, if you've been raised in church and you have faithful parents, you might come to think, well, you know what? This is no big deal. This is, this is all I've ever known which is why you need to be continually reminded of what a great deliverance you have had. It's not just those who have the, who have the stories of how God has, has transformed them. It's not just they who rejoice over this deliverance. It's all of us. We have all been delivered. You need to know, children, what a big deal it is that you have Christian parents. You need to know what a big deal it is that, that, that your life is different from those who who've never known the Lord Jesus. What a great contrast your life is. What a great and amazing and incredible victory. The Lord Jesus has worked on your behalf, young man, young woman. The Lord Jesus has worked an incredible and amazing victory on your behalf so that you would not have to know a life of darkness and death and ignorance and separation from the Lord Jesus. You've, had, you've never had to have those heartaches. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has delivered you from them before you even knew it, before you even knew what dangers were out there. The Lord saved you from that. And you've never known a day where you were not living in his light and life and blessing. So how do we remind our children of this great deliverance? Well, how did Israel remind their children of the great deliverance they experienced after leaving Egypt? Well, the first generation had great stories to tell. The first generation saw the plagues. The first generation put their blood on the doorposts. They crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They ate manna in the wilderness. <clears throat> they saw all of these incredible things. They got water out of the rock. But the second generation and the third generation and the fourth generation and the fifth generation lived off of the equity of that great deliverance. And so they had to be reminded, right? So how were they reminded? Continually, year by year. What did God give them? He gave them celebrations. He gave them feast days. He said, here's what you do. Here's how you keep this always in front of your children. I never want your children to forget what a great deliverance I have worked on your behalf. So I, I don't want you to forget, every year I want you to eat the Passover. You know that meal you ate before you left Egypt? I want you to eat it again every single year. I want you to eat the Passover. And then when your child says... Dad, what are we doing? What is all this about? What do you do? You tell them the story. You tell them the story every year. You remind them. You keep it in front of them. You do not let them forget what they have been delivered from. And then at the different part of the year, at the end of the year, in the harvest time of the year, I want you to go, go to Jerusalem and I want you to set up booths. I want you to stack limbs against each other. I want you to make little tents. Why? So you can remember the time that we lived in the wilderness. Act it out, live it out. I want you to have rituals and traditions so that this story gets in your bones and becomes who you are. This story is part of your DNA. This is who you are. So how do we show forth this great salvation? How do we keep this victory, this deliverance in front of our children? By refraining from festivity? By drawing back? By, by being miserly? Is that, is that how we show them great salvation? 
or by throwing ourselves into it with both feet and saying, kids, we get to do all these fun things and we get to enjoy all these great blessings because the Lord Jesus has given us life through the Lord Jesus. Uh, God has given us life. Children, you have been delivered from unspeakable horror. You have been delivered from darkness and death and you've been delivered from living a life cut off from God's mercies. You have been delivered from that. And so we celebrate because of this great deliverance. Just for a quick example, I don't play the lottery, but let's say I did in this imaginary world and I won the Powerball. And I was really happy about that. Imagine I would be, and uh, you, you have all this money. You always think, what, what would I do with that? Well, say, say I pull you aside and say, hey, listen, um, how much do you owe in your house? And your eyes get big and say, what's, what's going on here? And I say, uh, yeah, tell me, how much you owe in your house? And you tell me. You have a car note? Do you owe anything on your car? Yeah, I owe some money on my car. You write that down. What other bills do you have? Do you, owe, do you owe anybody anything? Is there anything out there? Write it down. I want you to write it down on the back of the envelope. I want you to total it up. And you do that, you total it all up. I said, I want that number. And you give me that number. And I take out a checkbook and I write that same number in that box to the right. And I sign that check and I turn it over and I say, I love you. I love you, uh, thank you for letting me do this for you. And I wipe out, wipe out completely your house note, your car note, every debt that you have on the books, it's all gone. With the stroke of a pen, it's all gone. Let's say I did that. Well, I, I wish I could, I, I, wish, I, I wish I could, but I can't. But, but if I did that, how would you respond? How would you feel to wake up tomorrow not owing a dime to anybody ever, to own everything completely? Would you rejoice? Would you feel an incredible burden lifted off your shoulders? Would you feel energized now to then relieve the burdens of others? Hey, I've got all this money every month that I don't have to send to the bank. I don't have to pay a mortgage. What do I do with this money now? Maybe I should give it away. Maybe I should be generous. Think of how that would feel right now to have all your debts forgiven. Now look, the Lord Jesus has forgiven you an infinitely greater debt than what you owe your mortgage company. He has forgiven you an infinitely greater debt than your car note. He has forgiven you an eternal debt of sin and he has wiped it off the books and he's thrown it behind his back and he's put it through the shredder and it's gone. It's wiped out completely. Why do I make such a big fuss at Christmas? That's why. That's why we make such a big deal at Christmas. It's because we have been delivered. It's wiped off and now we have nothing but life and joy and a future eternal life with him. We also celebrate this way because God has kept his promises. After telling us about Mary and Joseph and the angel, Matthew gets straight to the prophecy of Isaiah, where, where Matthew reminds us, God told you all this was going to happen. Through the prophets, he made promises of these things. Not only did God say through the prophets, as Isaiah said, that, that he would be born of a virgin, but he also told us through, through the prophets what town Jesus was going to be born in. He told us the royal family line he was going to be born into. He told us he was going to be the king, the heir of the king, the son of David. All of this information is in the prophets and much more. If someone had done the genealogy work and if someone had believed in the promises, they could have been hung, hanging around outside of Joseph's family or around Bethlehem and they could have been the first to see all of this that was coming to pass. But we get to the gospels and we see no one's really waiting. Nobody's watching. Nobody's looking. Simeon, there's Simeon at the temple. There's a handful. 
but for the most part, nobody's, nobody's hanging out ready and watching for this great deliverance. All this is happening undercover. All this is happening out of the way. But now, Matthew tells us, all these things that God has been promising, all of these things are happening. God has kept his promises. Therefore, because he's kept his promises, his word is true and reliable, and the things he says are real. These are not abstractions that we rejoice in. These are not myths or fairy tales. These are verifiable facts. The Bible invites you to come check it out. Come, see, weigh the evidence. God said it would happen over here, and then centuries later, it happened over here. And see, that's how we know that God keeps his word. He said it would happen, and then it did in history, in time, on earth. So that means you and I rejoice and celebrate real events that happened in human history. We don't celebrate ideas or principles or morals or values. <laughs> My wife was reading me uh, something from some uh, high school newsletter somewhere, uh, some I think it was her, her school. I said, what's, you know, what's Hanukkah all about? Well, Hanukkah is all about light and darkness. Okay, well, what's, you know, what's winter solstice all about? Well, winter solstice is all about rebirth or whatever, new, whatever. I, I don't remember. What's Christmas all about? Christmas is all about uh, uh, world unity. What? That's that? Is that what? That's, that's good, I guess. That's fine. What's, what's Christmas about? Ask somebody in the mall. Uh, Christmas is about love and joy and peace and harmony, right? Is that what we celebrate? We celebrate these abstract things. We, we, abstract, we, we, we celebrate these things that, that you know, are just ideas, philosophies. What, what is the basis of our love and joy and peace and harmony? What is the basis of our happiness? Love and joy and peace are, are not found out there. They're found in a person who is Jesus. From him, all good things flow. We can only have good things insofar as we submit to him and he is real. We celebrate these things that are real and true and reliable. God said it would happen, it happened, and that's what we celebrate and that's why we celebrate. And lastly, last thought, we make such a big deal, we make such a big fuss because God has drawn near to us. Isaiah said that one of his titles is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew repeats that. We couldn't draw near to God. We cannot build a ladder to heaven. We cannot even desire to draw close to him unless he loves us first. He makes the first move. He comes to us. Emmanuel means that God has come close to us, that he has reconciled to us, that he is in covenant with us, that he's in communion with us. But before Jesus came, at best, we saw him through types and shadows. We, we saw him through veils, through priests. We're always kept at arm's length under the old covenant. But in Jesus, he's taken on our very form. He's taken on our nature, our flesh, and he has gone through life with us and he has embraced us and pulled us close. Like you do when you see somebody you love. I, I was hugging the Mac Burnett's this morning. I grabbed him by the hand and said, come, come in here, come in here. That's what you do, right? You love them. You pull them close. You pull them in tight. I love you. I, I need you close to me. I'm going to squeeze you. <laughs> you know, I, I love you. That's, that's, how, that's how we embrace. That's what God has done to us. He's, he's, he's pulled us in. That's what God with us means. He has, he has brought us into his life and into his communion and into his nature. I want you to know how close we are, how bound together we are in love.
God has not abandoned us. He has not turned a deaf ear to our cries. He's not left us to our own devices. He has not stranded us here to muddle through and work through things on our own. He has come to us. And just like you rejoice when you see a, a loved one that you've been apart from for a time, just as you rejoice to get together with your children and with your family and with your friends, you rejoice in the fellowship, the close fellowship of our creator and king. This, we could go on and on and on, but this is why we make such a big deal about this time of year. This people of God is why you don't let anybody ruin it for you. Nobody is going to ruin it for me. Don't listen to the guilt mongers. Don't draw off to yourselves and mope and show everybody how religious you are by not participating in any of the goofiness, any of the silliness. No, we act like people who have been delivered. Real quick, back in Esther, remember, back in Esther, there was a plot to destroy all of God's people in the kingdom, remember? And through the faithful acts of Esther, Queen Esther, God turned things around. He turned things completely on their head. And the mastermind of the evil plot, Haman, was then... Uh, executed on the very same device that he had planned for God's servant. He got the punishment he was trying to apply to others. And how do the Jews respond to this great reversal? How do they respond to this big deliverance? Do you remember? Here's what Esther, the book of Esther says. They had rest from their enemies and that month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, that month that was turned from mourning to a holiday, they made them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. They got it. They, they understood it. That's how you celebrate. That's how you rejoice in a big reversal. That's how you mark a victory. That's how you mark a deliverance. We're, we're not motivated uh, to give because we, we're, 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 we're selfish. We're motivated to give because we are loved by a God who is love. We are loved by a God who demonstrates his love by giving himself, by pouring himself out for us. That's what love is. Love is giving. Love is giving to meet needs. Love is going beyond needs and giving to meet wants. We give in ways that show how loved and appreciated and happy we are in the person we're giving to. We want to bring them joy. We want to make them laugh. We want to make them happy. We want to give so that without a doubt, they know that we love them. You see, for our Father in heaven, for God, nothing is more important than, you, than that you know that you are loved by him. Nothing is more important for God than that you know you are loved by him. And so he keeps pouring himself out for you every single day of your life. He gives and he gives. And when he gave us his son, he gave us the most unbelievably extravagant, precious gift ever. And that's not out of character for him. That's not unusual for him. That's how he is. You just got to get used to it. He loves to give. It's how he gives. And when God gives us these gifts, he doesn't think, okay, you know, I don't want to spoil them. I don't want to turn them into little greedy materialists. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't, I don't want to make them ungrateful. He, he doesn't think that. By giving to you this way, he knows it has the opposite effect. He knows by giving you, uh, to you this way, it makes you humble. It makes you want to give the way he does. He wants to provoke you to love the way that he loves so that you'll be generous the way that he is generous. God doesn't attack secularism and materialism and consumerism by being stingy. 
That's not how God uh, deals with those things. He gives and he gives you good things so that you'll be imitators of his gift giving. So he doesn't want you to be stingy and cold and selfish and covetous. The, the selfish man doesn't have any desire to give or to open his wallet for anybody. And so often I really think the selfish man does hide behind pious words about the real meaning of Christmas, right? Uh, just so he doesn't have to give when he's actually missing the real meaning altogether. The selfish man doesn't think about his duty to bring other men happiness and other people happiness through the wealth that God has given him. Being like our God means not being self-centered. In this way, a full-orbed, full-throated celebration of Christmas does two things. First, we rejoice in the great deliverance. How do we rejoice? By imitating our God and giving things away, giving precious gifts. We do that. And at the same time, the miserly and the covetous and the cold-hearted and the bitter and the angry and the selfish, those sins are all exposed by this giving. The good news is these sins are sins that he also came to deliver us from. And so they're exposed so that we can repent of them and change. So people of God, put away the works of darkness. If you have indeed forgotten about this great deliverance, well, I just reminded you about it. <laughs> Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. And if your focus is selfish or if your focus is materialistic, then repent and ask God to forgive you and ask God to give you wisdom and a heart of joy. If you're spending money you don't need to spend, if you're spending money you don't have to spend, stop it, cut it out. Stop where you are, don't go deeper in debt. But in every way that you can within your means and with proper stewardship of God's good gifts, use this season to be like your God. Give and rejoice and sing. Because Jesus has come and he has delivered us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this great deliverance that you have worked on our behalf through Jesus, your son. We, we don't even have words. We, uh, we rejoice to think that you have loved us this way. And so, Father, may we keep this always in front of us and in front of our children by enjoying these good gifts you have given us. And Father, may we do that in this season and put away all works of darkness. May we, may we root out and repent of all sin that would, that would keep us from rejoicing completely. And may we set our sights and our hearts on you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.